This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 598 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show revered strength and conditioning coach and author, Dan John. So we discuss a host of topics from the impact of combat and trauma on his immediate family, training the youth athlete, overcoming injury, physical education, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 600 guests. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dan John. Enjoy. Well, Dan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, thank you. Yeah, this worked out pretty easily, actually, yeah. So, as we were saying before we start recording, I actually took one of your classes at TSAC in Orlando a few years ago. So, uh, it's it's weird, you know, God, the universe moves these chess pieces around, and even though you were someone I'd wanted to reach out to, 
I know a couple of people recently probably told you about this podcast and they connected with me again. I'm like, okay, this is obviously the time that we need to do this. So yeah, I'm yeah, very excited. Yeah, I'm always here to help. But it, uh, it's <laughs> you could have just emailed me and I'd have come on for you. Okay. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, all right. So then, first question: Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm in Murray, Utah. My uh, my dog is a few feet away from me. Uh, I have a. I'm gonna get my workout in after we hang up. Uh, it was a rainy night, and life is good. Beautiful. Well, speaking of life, I would love to start at the beginning of yours. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Oh, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I tell people this all the time, but I'm the youngest of six. Um, um, both parents are Depression era, uh, World War II. Um, Mom saw a lot of pain growing up with the Depression and losing her brothers to uh, well, the pandemic, uh, the uh, 1918 sp- uh, flu, uh, she lost uh, family members, three, three brothers. And then, of course, her husband went to war. All of her brothers went to war. Uh, my dad, of course, uh, was abandoned as a child, kind of traded around by the ants up in uh, near Sherbrooke in Canada. And uh, he had a rough life. Uh, it was, in fact, it's interesting. I have his book reports from school right, right behind my computer. Uh, but he was a good student, worked hard, and his the answer to all of his questions was to join the U.S. Army, which he did. He could have played professional baseball, but for whatever reason, that my dad went in that direction. And uh, World War II happens, and that do my parents get married and meet and get married in the middle of it. And I'm the youngest of six, and um, very competitive, very military family. Uh, I was always chasing people. Uh, my brothers, I'm the uh, five boys, one girl. And I think that's a real advantage. If you want to, if you want an athletic child, have a lot of kids. Uh, the first couple will be, you know, it'll be fine. But the last ones will be always trying to keep up and uh, always be and being always knocked down is a real advantage. You know, um, <laughs> it's uh, you know being competing against faster, better athletes constantly. When you do finally hit puberty and you finally catch up. Uh, you shoot ahead of all. I mean, I was I was the youngest boy in my class, and uh, and I I was always just always behind physically because of puberty and being Irish, you know. And so finally, uh, when we caught up, it was a good thing. Yeah. So it's an interesting perspective. My son is in the same position that you are now. He he was one of the youngest in his school year. He's built like his dad, so he's not a not a big lad either. Um, but that I've watched it develop the work ethic because like there were even school years academically where he almost failed out and got him, you know, tutoring and stuff. But now I see that dogmatic fight in him and he'll be out running, you know, 6am before school starts as 14 year old kids. So yeah, I can totally understand what you're talking about. Uh, I think it's, uh, I can't remember if it's talent code or outliers that talks about Usain Bolt being the youngest. And of course, when you're, you're built like that and you're come from the country which which has the national sport is sprinting and then you throw in being the youngest that's a pretty good trifecta you know dna uh, so uh, genetics geography and, and birth order that's that's probably the best so gentle listener if you want an elite athlete uh first go get better parents than you currently have secondly find a place that uh will support the dream that you have and be born there. That's very important that you're born there 
And finally, be sure you're probably the fifth, sixth, or seventh child of these, these genetically superior parents in this in this perfect place. So there you go. There's my point. Thank you very much, folks. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Simple, actionable steps. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. Well, just going back to your parents for a second, I just interviewed a World War II veteran a few weeks ago, Frank Wright, who was actually on Iwo Jima. He was um, wounded but survived. And that's a generation that sadly, a lot of people report when they have them in their family didn't really talk a lot about that conflict and they carried a lot of that with them. No. What was your experience with your dad? Well, first off, there is a movie that I think is worth watching. You know, all these guys waving all their flags from their trucks and they paint. It's funny. One, one of the rules about uh, American flags, you're not supposed to put anything else on them. You're not supposed to put any stri extra stripes. You're not supposed to make it out of uh, Soviet-made uh, a weapon. I always think it's funny when guys have AR-14s on their on their on their truck. And I'm, okay, whatever. But uh, if you watch the movie from 1946, the best years of our lives. Uh, William Holt. Oh no, no, not William Holt. Uh, it might be Frederick March. Darn it, I don't know. But uh, it won Best Picture. Uh, the guy who. Uh, the guy who doesn't have hands isn't an actor, but received the Academy Award for Supporting Actor, and he's brilliant. But it's a 1946 film that deals with what we would now call PTSD. It deals with it. It is straight up. It is an accurate portrayal of what went on in my home with my brothers coming home from Vietnam. Uh, uh, you, they, they turn to booze. They turn to other things. Um, of course, they were called baby killers because they, you know, I mean, it, this, it's a struggle for me, I'll be honest with you, uh, uh, to watch how Americans treated our Vietnam vets and now what, you know, and now um, this, the switch. And it, it does, it bothers me a lot because it's very personal to me. Did my father talk about the war? Um, I know that my father and my uncles and my cousins, um, I had a cousin who was, on the Arizona when it got blown up and Iwo Jima. And uh, he, I never knew until I was older, but you know, he had, you know, he, he liked to spend a lot of time alone in the woods, you know, and uh, thankfully he never offed himself or anything, but um, they wouldn't talk to it with someone like me. They, I was, they, they didn't want to hurt me. Um, so they held it in. Uh, they drank it down. They, they didn't, they didn't do pills or anything. Um, um, they kept everything close to the vest and basically let it destroy them, <laughs> you know, interiorly, you know, they, they, and it, it was a, you know, I look back on my father and, you know, uh, in my, in my family room, I have a little shrine to him. I have his, uh, world war II jacket. And then I put, uh, pictures of my mom and my dad in there because because the wives girlfriends moms uh, rosie the riveters they, they had a huge impact on how a lot of these guys survived when they came back um and i remember my father and i and i and, and i just know that you know he he was a troubled man and and what brought him joy was his children and sports so he focused on sports, children, and those uh, Zane Gray books. He loved Zane Gray. And, um, and that's what you did. You know, you, you smoked two packs of cigarettes every day. You, you started your day off with a 
couple cigarettes and a cup of coffee and you went and worked and then you had lunch and you came home and you, you ate dinner and you smoke cigarettes and you, you read books and you watch the San Francisco Giants and that's how you survived. Um, I'm sure all the uh, fitness professionals listening are, are aghast at this, but it's a wildly different world when your biggest concern is whether or not your Instagram selfie is, you know, is colored with the night right hue or not. And if you, you have the right explosion of words versus, you know, worrying about the fact that uh, I guess, uh, my, I guess my dad lost about a third of his stomach in, in the war. Uh, you know, and just, we didn't talk about it. it. Just wasn't a thing. You just didn't bring it up and didn't want to freak him out. So, you know, and so, so it ate away at Adam and, uh, you know, uh, uh, it was a rare, rare friend of mine whose dad didn't fight in World War II. And uh, it was it was all pretty obvious that these guys, these guys struggled with stuff that w was uh, was horrific. And also, too, you know, when my brothers would go over like my brother, Ray, when he went to Vietnam, his orders were for the duration. Of course, that didn't happen because his group of Marines was basically wiped out. Um, he, he was convinced he'd be there for, you know, until it was over because he went in what 63 or 64 with that second expeditionary brigade. My brother, Gary, of course he had orders. He had, you know, one year to the day, bye-bye. And they brought him home and threw him out. And I would say that would be very true. Uh, my, my brother, Phil was a much more long-term service member. He, uh, so he has a totally different story. And of course my brother, Rich. We always joked that he had it the worst because he had to go to Oklahoma uh, uh, for his for for uh, that was when they draft they drafted him at like twenty five and a half with a kid because my hometown of South City is poor and uh, and then of course it's San Mateo County so nobody from San Mateo Burlingame Millbrae San Bruno had to serve it had to be everybody from South City so they they drafted him right in the last minute you know he should have been. And we always joke he had it the worst because he had to go to Oklahoma. Sorry, Oklahoma listeners. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so I mean, and, and I watch those guys dealing with uh, their issues uh, growing up and, you know, dealing with being called baby killers. My brother Ray, a professor, wouldn't teach him in college because he was a Vietnam vet. The, the professor up and walked out of the room and wouldn't teach the class. So go ahead, uh, wave your flags, folks, and just remember that's, that's the reality, what it be, means to be a, uh, 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 a veteran. Uh, and, and I know it's different now, but I'm sure even um, our more recent uh, veterans would say the same thing that, you know, every, everybody wants to, you know, uh, have the 45 minute thing before the game where there's this, you know, the, the planes are coming in overhead and the little girl is, you're supposed to sing the Star Spandle bang, uh, Banner in a very specific, timely, quick way. You don't add in your own interpretations. You don't change the words. You sing the damn song and you walk off. Uh, you know, if you're a Christian audience and someone says they are father, you don't start winging it. You know, hey, man, hey, great dude in the sky, brother. You know, we are all here. You know, it's a very specific kind of prayer, Okay. And the Star Spangled Banner is the same way too. You don't you don't wing it, and all this stuff that goes on. Uh, it's interesting because my 
uh, I was out with a, a friend of mine. She's a veteran. We went to a, a rugby game together and they had this little girl singing this, the star spangled banner. And she kept adding <laughs> to it. And she goes, I hate this stuff. And everybody I know who serves hates this stuff sitting around us. There's a couple of guys in camo and military gear. And it's like, and she goes like this, none of these guys served. None of these guys served. No. And I go, how do you know this? Because I mean, I know why she goes, because once you've, once you've worn the uniform, you don't wear it. You don't wear a little bit of it. And you know, you don't, so you don't wear your Wrangler jeans with the camo top. You know, you don't, you don't do that, you know? So well, that was a long, that was a long point, but thank you for letting me say that, that, that I just vomited out my heart for you, James. Well, I appreciate you doing that. And, and the reason I think it's so important, and I think especially what really comes out of these early life conversations is, you know, you're obviously known for strength and conditioning and being one of the most revered coaches, but whether it's a Navy SEAL or a firefighter or a coach on here, you know, we we have these incredible stories early on mm-hmm. and, you know, these incredible family members. And I think the World War II generation, we lost almost all of them. So the only people now that really get to speak are their children, their, you know, their, their next generation. And what's interesting is you had the Vietnam and the World War II experience. World War II, in general, they came back to ticker tape parades and there was a healing element of that. The, the- That's why you got to watch this movie. That's why it's so important to watch this 1946 movie because it, that's not what happened for every guy. Now, maybe certain groups did walk through New York City and they had a ticker tape, but the rest of the guys, uh, that's why the movie is so good because they nailed it. There's a whole bunch of guys sitting around and there's no airplanes to take them home. They keep canceling flights. That's how the show starts. And then, of course, but there's a boneyard of all these brand new planes that are getting junkyarded. And that's, I think, if you look at the movie as an adult and get the plane metaphor, I think it'll be very hard. They're all, we're all heading out to the junkyard. Um, um, it was tough. And don't forget, I mean, the World War I vets came back and there was no work for them. And they did that famous march on Washington. So they found, you know, a couple of generals to uh, evict them. And when you look up the history of the generals who evicted them, it isn't, uh, it isn't a good story for the both of them. So. No, no, I've seen little glimmers of that. And, you know, I think yeah. that's just it. So, you know, yet, like you said, you've got some ticker tape raise, you've got a lot that aren't. I had a couple of, uh, World War, excuse me, Vietnam vets on. Um, one was like mortally wounded. He survived, but critically wounded lying on the asphalt after he'd been transported back to the U.S. and someone urinated on him, on his wounds. And these, this is what we did to our veterans. And remember, a lot of these men and women, didn't even ask like they were drafted as you said so they weren't even like you know lining up and the ones yeah. that did you know were being sold i think sim- sadly similarly we're seeing that yet again this very one-sided view, yeah. view that we're getting of course a country being invaded is, is horrendous but do i think that every russian person is evil absolutely not but that's what's being painted now we're creating a new <laughs> a new demon a new enemy yeah. so yeah. Well, yeah, I, I always asterisk uh, the Soviets. So that's that's just my heart. I, I have a hard heart to the Soviets. So that's, and I need to work on that. That's my own personal thing. And I, I call them the Soviets because we all know there's no difference there. <laughs> um, yeah, but you're right. And, uh, you know, my brother Gary, he's a Vietnam vet, disabled uh, uh, vet. And uh, I've always told him the answer to so many Americans' problems is just bring back the draft. And... Uh, 
I tell you one thing, these, uh, it would help. It would help in a lot of, I mean, (laughs) it's not a good thing. I'm just saying, but it would just, you know, when you're, when you're getting your, I had to register for the draft and, you know, and and we get, when you do that, it's like, okay. um, Just the act of registering for the draft that. And then of course, when the numbers would tumble out in the lottery, you know, uh, you know, you got to regret the, the fact that your mother induced at uh, 1135 versus inducing at 1155 uh, changed the, it changed your life. You know, that's, that's a tough, that's a tough thing. Uh, and of course, it, you know, and the draft was so it was done. So again, immorally. And, you know, here we go. Uh, either we all get drafted or none of us, you know, I th- that's what I think, you know, Absolutely. Well, speaking of school age and athleticism, I had a uh, a man on a few weeks ago who created an incredible documentary. I'd never seen this before. Um, it was called The Motivation Factor, and it detailed a PE program in uh, La Sierra High School in California. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's excellent. Yeah. So what was PE like when you were at school age? And then with this incredible journey that you've been through, and you know, you're still a high level athlete to this day, what have you personally witnessed of PE in, in the US? So first off, that that school particularly was a one-off. We had their charts in my high school about what it took to get to certain places in there. Um, so when I was young, uh, this is going to sound so weird to the audience, but you had to wear uh, you had to wear a PE uniform. I was out helping my discus thrower about a week ago. We were at a high school, and this PE class comes out, and this little she's the PE teacher, and she's like, "You need to leave." And it's like she's about, and so I sat and I watched. Her first thing was her first thing was to tell all the students to put their cell phones into their backpacks. Now, why do you bring backpacks to PE? Why is that not in your locker? And then I noticed that none of the kids were in, I couldn't, some of the kids were in street clothes. Some of the, there wasn't, and God only knows what some of the kids were wearing, but it was their PE class and they were just in a hodgepodge of things. And they sat in the sun basically for, I, I wanted to watch because I wanted to see what was so, here you got, I mean, I'm working with my discus thrower and what an opportunity she could have had to say, can you tell them about, can you tell my students about this? You know, and, and I could have had Emily throw. Well, when I was young, first and foremost, PE, physical education was a class. You took attendance, you had to run out. We had to step on numbers. That's how you knew. So I, like, for example, I might've been number 22. So there was a number spray painted into the ground called 22. And I had to stand there. We had to get a sock check, a jock check, a shorts check, a, um, a shirt check. And if it was raining, we still stood there because that's that was what you did at PE class. And then, um, you know, uh, Mr. Freeman would say, uh, all right, get going. And we'd run two laps around the football field. We would do an obstacle course. We would do calisthenics. And that gets us about 30 minutes into the day. And then he would talk about what we're going to do in PE class that day. So we would have about a half an hour of exercise and then we'd have physical education class. And, uh, uh, we, the, the weightlifting program, if you read my work, I still use it. It's called the Southwood, uh, power clean military press, front squat, bench press. Uh, we had to do three or four, probably three times a year. We had to do actual testing where we did, uh, I want to say it was 10 events, but it was like push up, sit up, pull up. 
agility, 40 yard time, 600 meters, uh, 600 yards for sure. I remember that one, the six minute run test, run, 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 run. Um, I don't remember all of them, but there was 10 tests. And if you hit a certain level, you got like a, uh, let's just say an orange triangle. If you were a little bit better, you got a green triangle, a little bit better. You got, and you would put this triangle on your gym shorts and people would train to get a higher level triangle. It was a little piece of felt that you glued onto your shorts or sewed onto your shorts and guys would train during uh, breaks in the day and during to get their times and pull-ups and stuff done better. Um, we did every sport and there was on every sport, there was three different tests for every sport. There was a skills test. Like in soccer, there was, I think there was like maybe 10 cones and you were timed for how, how fast you sprinted the ball, you know, around the cones. So, uh, and it was like out of 10 free throws, stuff like that. And then there was also a written test about the rules of the game. And the third thing we had to play in a little tournament and you got points by how your team did. So everything I just said is an anathema of what I saw the other day at this PE class. It is literally the exact opposite. She was taking role after the kids had already been in class for probably 12 minutes versus blow a whistle. Everyone lines up. And I don't know how you turn things around, but every time I watch, uh, you know, at the schools I've taught at, they went from being physical education classes to rolling out the basketballs. Um, at the one, the, at one school, I don't, we had one PE teacher. I don't think ever did anything besides dodgeball or basketball. It would be dodgeball was the organized sport and basketball would be the, of the four days a week, they went three out of four with the kids just be, play, you know, just playing pickup games. I don't think in the grand scheme of things, what I, all that I just said really matters. You know, I don't, I mean, I just, I just, the, my only thing is from about age 10 to about age 18 is the last time, is kind of the last time we're going to have a chance to have organized group physical education, organized group health classes, so I'm still a big believer in health classes. There are kids who go through who don't, maybe they need to have, maybe they need to hear why it's important to wipe yourself a certain way for hygienic reasons. Maybe it's important they find out why it's important to wash your hands after you urinate or defecate. Uh, maybe they need to hear why it's important to floss once or twice a day. Uh, a lot of kids will come in and already know that, but what I've noticed is less and less and less and less do. Um, to me, it's like one one other one other time you can read the great books. You know when? I mean, uh, I do, but I'm an outlier, and I, I'm an outlier in everything I do, everything. Proudly so. Uh, in the in the L. Frank Baum wrote a lot more books than the Wizard of Oz in the Oz series, and one called The Scarecrow of Oz. He says, "Ordinary people are like leaves on trees; they die and they fall off." I like the extraordinary ones. And uh, I, th I, th I think there's a, there, there's something to be said about that. You know, the, the one thing I've, I've noticed in life is, and I, Earl Nightingale says it, he talks about in lead the field. You want to get at the top of the pyramid, that top 5%. And 
it's only one out of 20. Only one out of 20 retirees have enough money to fund themselves uh, without external help, without Social Security, without something else. One out of 20. Only one out of 20 people in a corporation will finish the coursework to improve themselves at a job. Um, basically, only about one in 20 Americans train regularly. Okay. Uh, if you talk to your dental hygienist, probably only one in 20 people who come in floss twice a day. Certainly, maybe, yeah, or why well, let's do that. One out of 20 people floss once a day. Okay. Uh, what, you, what you begin to see in life is that these little things I'm talking about, you know, getting a, getting a good head start on your health, your fitness, maybe some things about longevity, that will put you in rare error the rest of your life. You know, taking care of your dental health at 16, 17, 18 is, I'm 65, it'll do miles for you at my age. Uh, taking care of your, you know, uh, Art Devaney's great line, uh, lady asked the question, what do you do if, if you, how do you lose fat? And he just looked at her and said, don't get fat in the first place. Of course, she got really pissed off about that, but uh, it's true. I mean, you know, um, the, the answer to so many questions is don't get fat in the first place. You know, what do I do about bad dental health? Don't have bad dental health in the first place, you know? Um, and so this is a long answer and I apologize. Don't apologize. But I think, I, I think if you learn the rules of, it's interesting. I actually have friends now who don't understand. They don't understand the rules of American football. Uh, and I'm not talking about, I mean, I'm talking about people who look like they should know. They'll come to a Super Bowl party and go, oh, sports games. And I'm like, okay, yeah, don't. At my Super Bowl party, don't ask how many points a field goal is. I, I think, because I mean, we take, we not the Super Bowl so much in this home, but the college football playoffs uh, kind of seriously. And how do you not know about a free throw versus, a, you know, a three pointer? How do you not know the overtime rules in hockey, soccer, football? You know, I, I how do you not know what a discus throw is? To me, that goes right back. And and to me. It's not being stupid, it's ignorance. And ignorance is the things you ignore. And I'm worried that, God, what did you hire? Grumpy old man today? Jeez. Um, <laughs> You're just getting passionate. Yeah. I'm, I'm worried that what's happened is we've decided to ignore things. Uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a community, we ignore things. Uh, we... It, We've let, and I was warned this, uh, warned about this about 30 years ago at a workshop. It was a different kind of workshop, but they said that what happens is that because of the way the media works, and this is 30 years ago, this pre-internet, they reward the one percenters on each side of an argument. They 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 want the one percenters on each side of an argument to talk. Um, I mean, I I don't want to. This is a bad, the topic was abortion. And the, the, the woman up there made a very good point. She goes, you know, and she has a, she had a very strong view on, on the topic. And she goes, listen, when I hear what they put on television, I also, and she said the radical 98% needs to take over. So anytime you have a physical education program at a school, 
we instantly fall that we let the one percenters run it. So you let the, the mommies who have the money, little Julia is going to take one of my parents told me one time that she spends 1200 bucks a month on her daughter's club volleyball team. Take that money, put it in a jar, bury that jar in the backyard. Trust me, that's a better investment than your daughter's crappy volleyball career. But we let those mommies talk. And then we find that other 1%. And it'll, it, I usually use the word fair with this group. That's not fair. What do you mean it's not fair? Well, you know, uh, let's go back to the best years of our life. Billy doesn't have arms. And you're expecting him to do push-ups. Well, listen, mommy, uh, listen, crazy person. Uh, it's pretty obvious. We're not going to test him on pull-ups. Okay. We get it. Those of us in the 98%, we get it. We understand the point, but we do think every child should be exposed to uh, floss in your teeth. One, one, one percent or raise your hand. My son lost his teeth when he was five in an accident or eight in an accident. Okay, we'll have a different set of rules for your son. Okay, well, problem solved. Can, you just rub your gums. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, uh, you know, and then of course the other one percent mommy will say, uh, "I take you know Cliven to the dentist every day." You know, it, it, always we let those nuts on the on the ends dictate everything. And in physical education and in my field, we continue to do that. You know, by God, if I, some. When you work with a fat loss female client, they talk about like Miss, the Ms. Olympia contest. Well, I don't want to look like that. Well, you're not. It's not going to happen. Nor are you going to look like Shaquille O'Neal if you, you do shoot free throws. It just doesn't happen that easily. I mean, I'm always amazed that people think that they're, they're, they're two sets of five away from looking like Mr. Olympia. I always find that just fat. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to swell up. Yeah, we'll we'll just we'll let we'll try to get you to swell up for a day or two, and then what is every time you go for a jog? Yeah, I, I'm fine with that, but I just don't want to look like one of those Kenyan marathoners. Just before you run that 159 marathon, we'll we'll rethink about this. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. But with with the outlier conversation, you know, the, the extremist, should I say, not the outlier. Um, I think that's, well, firstly, the result is 2022. You know, I, I spout this statistic out all the time. But our nation, you talk about flag waving, you know, best in the world, we're 70% obese or overweight. That to me in that particular channel is not the best in the world. I hate to tell everyone. But you look at PE and- oh, oh, Wait, wait. Our healthcare is terrible. Yes, our educational system is teachers are fleeing. Uh, it is hard to get a teacher right now. Doctors are dropping out. Uh, medical, the medical field is in a huge turmoil. Many doctors have figured out it's much better just to slide over to a for-profit place. Uh, it, 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 the, I mean, so yeah, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, but that's just it, though. And I, I've had, you know, I've had educators from Finland, and I've had, you know, people, doctors from from the UK, which I think fundamentally is an incredible system if it's actually run properly and funded properly. You know, for, I've had prison guards from from Norway, and you know, the guy that spearheaded Portuguese decriminalization of, of addiction, you know, on the wow. show. So yeah. all these great people. So it's not about bitching about the problem, bringing solutions on as well, but take the physical education of today. I see two extremes and, and the extremes can be equally damaging. It'd be interesting to get your perspective. The one extreme is the PE, um, you know, like Doug Orchard was the guy that, that made this documentary. 
and he put a Fitbit on his son. And he actually, I think he said something crazy, like he got more exercise in his math class than he did in his PE class. But then you have the other extreme, which I've talked about with other coaches too, where it's the sport route. But now you've got this whole like live vicariously through your child, this travel team thing. And now we're breaking. Like that was a real mind-blowing thing for me as an Englishman coming over here was all these Uncle Ricos. And I, I don't mean that to be mean, but it's just true. These broken guys with I could have been great stories that were only in their like early mid 20s and they were you know now they're obese and so we either side of those extremes we are destroying wellness in this country well and I I, it always makes me laugh when a parent thinks that they can buy their way into elite performance the kid who's going to beat your child is the kid who's like this is the only option I have this is it if I can make, if I get a scholarship, if I can get a scholarship, if I can get a contract, this is it. That kid who, you know, it, it's fascinating. My friend uh, Chip, he was the strength coach for a, a NFL team. He told me, he goes, he walks to the parking lot and he pulls me over and goes, look in the back seats of all these cars. And so I go, that's kind of weird. And I, I looked through two and it, they were basically filled with McDonald's bags. So we're talking about the highest end guys uh, in professional sport in America who will eat at McDonald's two and three and four times a day because growing up McDonald's was a treat to them. And now that they can afford it, they, they, they will pop in and get McDonald's every single day. When you say that sentence to a, to a parent and like, what I'm trying to tell you is the guys that you think little Billy's going to compete against think McDonald's is a treat something special it's something high end and <laughs> you know and and your and your club team i mean these I, I go to i travel a lot so i'm in these hotels with these damn club teams and i they come in and they've got three four five different bags and um you know these the moms will come in with these massive crates of those sugar sports drinks which just i mean honestly i just drank coffee there's more value to a cup of coffee than uh, any of that crap and they'll have several coaches and they'll have to have a meeting room to talk about the schedule and they've got they're all wearing matching stuff and there's 80 different things how to come you need seven bags to be on a swim team i've seen what you guys race in you don't need a lot of you don't need a lot of luggage to race in this thing you know that i mean you can actually put it in your jeans pocket and, and it would be just fine you know and but how often do those guys make it? And, and someone's going to raise their hand. Well, Dan, you don't understand it. it. Okay, I don't understand it. You're right. I, you're right. I don't. Except I've been a Division One MVP, <clears throat> and I know that none of the guys there, um, none of the guys on my team, uh, it was there was no silver spoons at Division One. I. I mean, maybe in some sports, but not in mine. Yeah. Well, and I think you know you can then see the domino effect. I mean, the way we've done it with these extremes is not creating a healthy country, you know? And if you're focusing purely on performance to the point where your kids are blowing out shoulders and knees at, you know, 15, 16 12. years old. 12 yeah, years old and you're done, yeah. That's not well. And, as, you know, and it's an interesting thing, even when you think about, I'll take football, for example, you have that morbidly obese kid as a coach, as a high school coach, are you trying to steer that kid towards losing some weight and being healthier? Or are you like, oh, that's great. I have a refrigerator on my you know, defensive line. I'm just going to tell him to keep eating, you know? So where is that line of, of you know, I think we've steered away from wellness towards performance or so this completely is how I away the it. other way. 
This is how I break it up. Health is the optimal interplay of the human organs. That's Matthew Tone's definition. So I think it's very important to discuss health with your athletes. Well, with the, your, your kindergartners. Health is flossing, seat belts, helmets, health, you know. Then there's fitness. That's the ability to do a task. And we've let fitness, and especially now after the, the internet era, you know, fitness is now posting yourself doing some idiotic thing. And that's, well, God bless you. Good for you. It's the ability of a task and that's it. Right now, I'm totally fit to do this podcast. I'm sitting in a chair. My dog is bugging me here on my, on, uh, down here. Uh, I'm fit to do it though. Longevity is a quality and quantity issue. Uh, people in my family don't live long, but I, I'm trying to do my best to have a real quality experience here on this planet. And then there's the thing called performance. And that's when they call your name, you step up and you perform. And then there's this last one that kind of doesn't fit great. Um, but it's the word I use is I'm starting to use the word vanity, but it's body composition. It's, but it's okay because after about age 55, vanity is a perfectly good reason for someone to keep training. You know, and if you're, if you're my age and you want to look good for any reason at all, that's actually pretty damn good because to look good, you got to move good. And that's a, that's not saying you just kind of keep flipping that, you know, it's like uh, heads and heads and tails, you know, look good, feel good, look good, feel good. And that's okay. Look good, feel good, move good. And boom, boom, boom. And don't take an English class after you say that sentence. But when I, when I sit back and I say that, I think it's the job of a community to emphasize health because long, if, if we get everybody, in the, <laughs> I love how I say it. If everybody floss their teeth twice a day and, and brush their teeth twice a day, went to the dentist three times a year. Um, if, if we uh, had yearly physicals uh, that uh, also checked into joints and yearly physicals that looked into uh, trending obesity, you know, so that if you had 12 physicals in a row and we could trend your, wh what direction you're heading in. To me, that's that that'd be a much better. I mean, because that's just the start of it. But um, those are the kinds of things that I think physical education always should always do a better job on. Uh, I have a one workout where I, where I recommend to people, one personal trainers, and basically it's it's fifteen minutes, a 30, 30 minute workout, and then at the end of the workout, at at fifteen minutes, as the trainer, you hand out a floss stick. And then you coach the movements that, you know, okay, here's the issue I'm seeing when people are doing push-ups, and you up coach at the end of that period while people are flossing their teeth. And, and everybody laughs because I keep emphasizing the flossing the teeth, but frankly, long-term that 30 minute workout was probably pretty good for you. And that learning to move, you know, the coaching and cueing, on the movements probably is going to help you long-term, but so is that damn flossy because it's the habits that keep you going. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm talking way too much. I apologize. No, no, it's, it's totally pertinent though. And I think, you know, that's it. We need these conversations, especially now. I mean, one of the most heartbreaking things of the last two years, and this was where I stood. And you talk about the middle of the road. That's where I had one foot on either side of the dotted line is Whatever your perspective of, you know, the dangers of this virus and, you know, the, the treatment options that were presented to you, 
the absolute raw truth was if you improve your underlying health, your outcome is going to be better, whether you choose a vaccine or ivermectin or, you know, whatever, whatever you've been kind of sold. Um, and yet, sadly, that wasn't only not talked about, it was suppressed. And here we are two years later. And, and the most, you know, disgusting thing is that people are mentally and physically sicker than they were two years ago. So not only did we not learn a lesson, we actually regress even more. Yeah. So, this wellness comment, even if it's something as simple as flossing your teeth, if that leads to then maybe taking the dog for a walk, so maybe, you know, dropping in and, and going to the local pool and swimming for 10 minutes, and then you build and build and build, eventually you will start forcing these habits. But the environment that was created and, and ownership is obviously absolutely key. But I kind of try and like play devil's advocate. If you have an environment like last year at high school where you're a child and you come in and you wear the same uniform and you stand on the, you know, the, the, the number and you forge community and your teams want to level up. And then the next thing you've graduated and you're a you know, phenomenal shape that carries you through the rest of your life. That's also a product of your environment. If your environment is your government tells you to stay in your house and shut up and you can get alcohol and fast food delivered to your house, that's not an environment that's promoting health. So now, now all that white noise has stopped for the moment. And if you're not listening to, you know, Eastern European politics or gas prices, these are such important conversations for people to realize, okay, today I can floss one single tooth and then start building on that. Oh, DJ Fog, yeah. Exactly. And I've heard you talk about that too and, and Tim Ferriss and some other people, but that's exactly it. The only day we have is today. So if you haven't done it up to this point, then start today. Right. Well, I mean um, – well, that's my whole, uh, all my stuff's in the other room, but you know, every, every single day I, uh, you know, I start every day. Well, yeah, this, I, mean, I, I start every day and I put a line down a piece of paper and I write my two most important goals. And I, after I sleep, meditate, drink coffee every single day, I, I think of better ways to achieve my two most important goals. And that's, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm an outliers outlier. I get that. And, uh, my thing on the whole COVID stuff is that if you would have told my mom, and I've said this many times, my mom, her husband went off to war. Her brothers went off to war. Her sons went off to war. They didn't come back whole. She didn't fear war. She feared polio. And if you'd have told my mom, you're not going to get the polio vaccine because of some, you know, whatever she'd have slapped your face right off and she was a tough little irish woman and she would have done it so for me so for me uh i always think I, i'm maybe it's because of my theological background but i've always been somebody who who is taught to put the community first so if if i can do some i do this other thing that's kind of weird here in the united states i drive on the right side of the road even though i think my individual free, freedom should allow me to drive on the left side of the road um, sometimes you got to just kind of go with the flow. And again, the COVID, the COVID example is always going to be, you know, you know, I have a few friends who, and, and, and I'm thinking of one guy who, who I, I really like who barely survived COVID. And it's interesting to have a conversation with him about how he feels now after the 42 days he spent in, in intensive care. And it's like one of those things where true, true. You're absolutely right. Everything that was done was done badly. It was this, 
we couldn't have put together a worse torrent of issues here. But I, I, I will agree with your point. We have been denigrating uh, physical education in this country. And well, and, uh, our, our education system has, I mean, I mean, for example, the parents don't want it. This, this, uh, you know, this, this idea that we're back to banning books again in schools and the, the book choices, they want to ban Harry Potter for God's sakes. Why are we letting those outliers again, dominate the conversation? You know, what, and why do, why do some parents think they're experts on everything? And the funny thing is that there's the one school I used to teach at, uh, a principal told me that the worst parent he has to deal with was a, was a, a child. Okay. The worst parent at the school is someone I taught. And now this parent is an expert on every topic. I taught this person. And I can tell you from the, this was the greatest slacker in history who happened to marry very well. So <laughs> it's, so it's just funny how the universe works. All right, enough of that. Let's move on. Yeah, yeah. So I was looking for a kind of tangent, but there was no organic one. So we'll just yep. <laughs> hit the handbrake and turn. So you obviously have a you know a strong background in in coaching on the sporting side. When did you start kind of getting into the tactical side? Obviously, you were there at TSAC. Um, and then what differences did you start noticing with some of the tactical athletes that you were presented with versus the sporting athletes? First off, I hate the phrase tactical athletes. Um, when I mention this crap, the, uh, pardon me, when I talk to my brother, especially Gary, about this kind of stuff, it really, really upsets him. Uh he, the, there's a book written on his group called Search and Destroy. <clears throat> they had to keep taking and retaking Cigar Island in Vietnam. And, you know, we're talking about these math. So to, to prepare themselves, they, you know, those folding chairs, those crappy folding chairs that everybody sits in, you know, the, yeah. they always break at parties the summer. They basically duct tape those to the top of their armored personnel carriers and they had a guy up on top of that leading the fight so he could see better. So they duct tape a folding chair on top of the APCs to go into battle. And he goes, you know, and they, and I've seen pictures and I actually have a couple of him in Vietnam and they are just a bunch of skinny guys, you know, just fighting or fighting for each other. And, you know, now, you know, now we have these, I mean, every single thing we do has that little edge to it. You know, there's, it's not just, we're not just doing a race anymore. Now it's a Spartan challenge, you know, you know, um, now it's a, you know, uh, I don't know, again, Athenian warlord challenge. Everything is militarized. But if, when you talk to people who, who've been like, I got a buddy who's been deployed 14 times. And when you talk to him about this stuff, basically he tells you, uh, all you need to do to train is do loaded carries because all you ever do is pick stuff up and move it from here to there, here to there, here to there. That's that's. And then when someone shoots you, you know, you find a hole uh, years ago, years and years ago, my brother Gary told me that the reason he think he, sur he survived in Vietnam, because uh, we used to play hide and go seek almost every night in the summer and hide and go seek uh, taught him more about survival than all the, uh, 
I don't know, all the push-ups in the world and, you know, uh, kipping pull-ups you'd ever do, you know. So um, the number one thing for me is when I work with America's military is how brutally injured uh, our, our, our forces are, our, uh, the shoulder issues, the knee issues, the lower back issues. Um, and so, you know, like, for example, I came up with something called the post-deployment program and, and it's a very popular, uh, you know what I could do? Maybe I'm going to have to bounce right after this to, to coach, but, um, email me and I'll send you the whole program. And if you want to share it with your audience, I'm fine. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I'll put it on the webpage with this episode. Yeah. And um, the post-deployment program is, you know, the first month you, I mean, the presses are all half kneeling presses. And the, and the reason we do that is to get the hip flexor to stretch, to, to, to reteach the glute to work, to support the lower back and to have the shoulder work through a full range of motion. Uh, the pulling exercise for the first month is to hang. That's it. Um, it's high rep squats and it's rack deadlifts and it's lots and lots of loaded carries. And, and the Pacific command really supports this, this program. In fact, uh, uh, you know, somebody with stars on their shirt told me that was a, uh, you know, it, it was a game changer for him personally and he, he's starting to really understand the role of post-deployment training. Um, you know, pre-deployment training should, I mean, personally, for every push-up you do, I'd rather you work on your sharp shooting skills. I mean, for every, for every burpee, you know, you should be practicing appropriate concealment techniques, you know, because as great as burpees are, and I think they're a bunch of crap, uh, the truth is it's it's... <laughs> the enemy will figure out what you're doing after the 30th burpee. And I think they're going to get a good shot at you. Uh, so for, so for me, the number one thing I've kind of come around to is the realization of how broken, uh, how broken our forces are. Um, and, and, and we have, we have great physios. Uh, my niece, who's a, a Colonel, she's gonna, she's a, she's a nurse. And I am very proud of what the nurses and, and doctors have done uh, remarkably in here uh, uh, to to fix the, the 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 real breaks, but it's the lower end stuff that we're we got to work on, the 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 nagging lower back, hip, knee, ankle injuries, shoulders, shoulders ninety percent, ninety plus percent, and we have to be a lot smarter about working with. The, the, the general military core with these uh, egregious uh, issues. And I would say, yeah, shoulders, hang, hang for your shoulders, half kneeling press. I'm going to stick with it. There, I'm going to give you the damn program. Uh, waiter walks, uh, suitcase carries, uh, suitcase, by the way, suitcase carries and waiter walks uh, help stabilize the shoulders. Uh, sh uh, suitcase carries are great for pitchers. They actually help the velocity, according to one of the teams I work with. And uh, because it builds up and they have some reason for it, I don't care. I don't care why it works, if it works. I mean, you know, so the whole program is based on making people uh, move better and feel better. So for me, the thing that is, is just how 
broken uh, the core is when they get back. Now I knew that growing up when, you know, when I was, what was I, I was in the third grade. I was in the third grade when Ray came home from Nam, and I was in the sixth grade when Gary came home. So I was up close and personal watching um, what, uh, what post-deployment looks like in the real world. But now that I'm a professional now I realize that, I mean, I saw the wounded side of being, of, you know, Gary losing his hearing and, and Ray, you know, Ray still has massive issues. Um, I mean, I'm in, in full candor. I, I'm shocked that Ray and Gary are still alive. My brother, Phil is not, uh, he, he died. Uh, wow. Uh, almost three years ago, I guess now. Uh, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, uh, uh, God bless, uh, Ray. I am shocked. He's still alive. He, he was one of those Marines got hit by agent orange. Uh, both of his shoulders are gone because he was a, a mortar man uh, by definition, all mortar men have no shoulders. It's just, the, it's the, the, the issue. Um, so what, what I think we need to be much more holistic as we address this, there's no question on the, on the. I'm going to say mental side, but we we used to now we train you to unlock a thing. One percent of, of of males, maybe two, can kill with impunity. The rest of us ha- the rest of us have to be trained to overcome that urge to 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 be able to repeat it. So that has to be addressed, you know, to to kind of get us back to being normal. You're going to see some things that humans should not see. We got to deal with that. On the emotional side, while you were deployed, your girlfriend married somebody else and has two kids, okay, or whatever it is. You know, while while you did this thing, we got to deal with that. Financially, we've got to help you. You know, in a number of different ways. Uh, you know, I uh, we we you know edu- you know ongoing education has to be taken care of, blah, blah, blah. On the physical realm, here are these issues. And sadly, we can fix the financial very well. I think we can fix some of the emotional, mental things pretty well. We've got to be as good at getting you back to whatever whatever normal is post-deployment. Maybe that shoulder will never, you may never throw a fastball again, but at least be able to, you know, not have to type like this, you know, you know. so that that that's what I, that's what I think. Well, again, I appreciate your your perspective, and it's you know it's it's always interesting getting people who again are known for the sporting side, and then and looking at the the military. My community is the fire, you know, firefighters. So yeah. again, we don't have post deployment. So what I see through my lens, and I'm a you know white belt, one black stripe coach myself, um, is when every third day you're not sleeping you're not getting the ability to recover mentally or physically. I see my women, men and women breaking down mentally, but I also see the injuries. And, and the sad thing is, is this kind of like known guffawing of deconditioned firefighters making fun of the ones that take this training seriously and they go, oh, it's the fit ones that always get hurt. Well, if you look at sleep medicine, there's a reason for that because they're training, but they're not being given the ability to truly recover. But I see my profession plagued with injuries and then you start getting the weight gain. So with with these, you know, whether it's military, fire, police, or, you know, just regular person in the street, 
I see how an injury can become a real barrier to continuing your strength and conditioning because it just fucking hurts, for lack of a better word. <laughs> um, so you summarized it perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you, how do you help some of you know your athletes that you work with navigate that so they can get back? I mean, obviously not specific injury, sure. but just in general. Let's let's do this right now. Let me let me let me let me find the post deployment program. All right, we're going to send this. I'm going to, uh, there you go. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to send, uh, I will, this is how I do it. I could be wrong. I doubt that. Um, <laughs> basically, um, so let's, let's, let's slide back. You, you brought up recovery, so let's start there. I have this little thing called the rules of recovery, and, and then I highlight them in red. Uh, the biggest issue you guys have, no offense, uh, the tactical side, the firefighters and all you guys, you go online and you have a condition that my daughter explained to me is called FOMO, fear of missing out. You keep thinking that you're one new recovery device. Oh, I've got an app on my phone. Oh, I wear this magic ring. And, and the truth is uh, my, my brother, <laughs> number one is sleep. I'm not sure there's a number two. No, and that's the problem is right now, and I've talked about this is you talk about flogging a dead horse. This is my dead horse right now. The person that, you know, is checking out your groceries at the, the, the store or your banker at the bank, you know, 40 hours there, they're hitting their, you know, work weeks uh, ceiling. The fire service, 56 hours usually is the bare minimum before they're told they can't go home for a shift. And now it becomes a, you know, 72 hour work week. So the men and women that we have that we're asking to, be at this peak physical and mental performance. Sometimes, you know, a minute after they've got out of bed are the ones that we're working into the ground and not giving their recovery very conversely to all their sporting heroes that they adore every weekend. Right. And uh, it's interesting because I, I made a minimum for myself of nine hours of sleep every night. So I'm 65. I'm an Olympic lift. Hi, I'm Dan. I'm 65. And, I'm <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have a bare minimum of nine hours. The second thing, and this is something I think you guys need to be better. And this is something now the problem with the, the word I'm about to use is it's still considered to be kind of a woohoo meditation. We know that I don't know if you suffer from concussions, but it has been a major issue in my life. Yes, uh, I have. I was a martial <clears throat> artist for quite a long time. Yeah, I got hit head with a discus. It should have killed me. Um, which it should have killed me. In fact, I still think I'm dead. And these are just the synapses just playing off uh, this wonderful little story. Uh, I don't, yeah, I could be. Uh, <laughs> I have right over here, I have a, do you want me to grab it real quick? Yeah, please. And I'm not, by the way, uh, as you know, I don't sell anything, right? Um, so this is a sleep mask with Bluetooth speakers in it. Ah, okay. okay. So sleep mask, Bluetooth speakers. Every morning when I wake up, the moment I wake up, before I put on my makeup, I say a little prayer for you. So every morning uh, after I wake up, I put this on and I do a 15-minute meditation from brain.fm. And I do the one called brain reflection. I have probably gone through a couple of hundred different ones, and I like that one the best. Meditation is where you consciously bring yourself down. You turn the engine. And the reason I do it first thing is that when I meditate, most of the time, 
I fall asleep. And one of the things about you, if you fall asleep while you're meditating, that means you're tired. So meditation is actively practicing. But what's funny is that the research on meditation with concussions is that it's just excellent. I mean, it's very good for concussions. And the other advice I recommend is this thing here. And this is, the, and nothing else I've ever discovered works as well as this damn thing. This is that, uh, for those of you just listening, this is that gun. Uh, what do you call them? Massage guns? Yeah, Theragun or whatever. I think Theragun is the, the brand, but yeah. Every single other thing I've ever tried between, the, I've got vibrant, I, I can almost scare yeah. Almost usually I've got crap right behind me. Um, but I've got the, I mean, I've got the vibrating uh, uh, head massage, you know, the neck massager. I got the little thing you go like this. I've got the mat. So right there, I have a sauna. So for me, meditation, sauna, and then I take this into the sauna, by the way. And then, and then while I'm schwitzing, I, uh, I, uh, I try to rub out those hot spots, which, oh, there's one right there. So now this cost me 80 bucks and that cost me about 20 bucks and the, the lifetime pers- uh, subscription to uh, brain FM wasn't very expensive. Those are the best three things I can tell you. So, okay. First sleep by itself, make sleep, <clears throat> sleep King. If you're work, if you're sleeping at the station, I think you should have a face mask on and, and, and uh, be listening to white noise. I also have a white noise machine over there too. So Um, after that, I would say meditate, some kind of self-massage, and I like the gun. Obviously, there might be some nutritional things. I don't know. For my, in my case, fermented food seems to help with my recovery. That might be a one-off. But after that, everything else is just FOMO. Yeah, no, I, I can agree with you. I, I meditate. I use an app called Headspace. It's probably exactly oh, the same Headspace, kind of yeah. thing. I love that. Um, I think, yeah, the, the only problem with the sleep mask with the Bluetooth is that the firefighters might miss the call. So that might be the only downside because <laughs> they sleep so well with it on. Um, but when they go home, especially, if, for example, law enforcement, if they're coming home and it's daytime, I think the sleep mask is invaluable. I really do. And then yeah. um, it's funny you said with fermented foods, I just listened to Andrew Huberman's latest podcast where they're talking about the gut-brain connection and yeah. um, fermented foods being one of the only things they've shown that seems to truly enhance the good bacteria as opposed to the bad. What? Wow. All news to me. Uh, if you get a chance, uh, my my uh, Instagram is called Coach Dan John. Okay. Uh, would you mind putting in – I took a picture of – so yesterday, uh, I worked with the, the, the one of the groups I work with sent me this really cool thing. Okay, so the, the one of the sergeants made it for us for me. It's uh, an American flag, and then it includes the the shield of the group I'm working with, and then uh, a picture of them uh, a, a wooden like. And so it sent it to me. So it's a picture of me with that, and uh, number two, it's yesterday's lunch or breakfast. And uh, when you look at the amount of fermented food I eat on a typical day, it'll shock you. I make my own sauerkraut. Uh, I, I, I have turmeric sauerkraut. I have, uh, I mean, I, have, I, can't, I buy kimchi, but I try to eat eight different vegetables every day. That's just like, uh, that's on my 
well, on the back of my computer that I have a pirate map that tells me to do that. And, uh, but yeah, the fermented food has been a, a, a true game changer in my life. And I'm not exaggerating for once. Well, I want to just ask you one more question before I let you go. So be mindful of your time. Here you are, as you said, you call yourself an outlier's outlier. And I think the sad thing is that some of our outliers should be the average person. We just, the needle has swung so far the wrong way. Um, oh, can I just comment on that? Please. Yeah, being extraordinary, it's the easiest time in history to be extraordinary. It is shockingly, the bar to be outstanding is so low now. It just, it makes me laugh. I'm not being a jerk at all. I'm just saying it's, it, there are so many more. I mean, you can be, I don't care where you live. You can be outstanding in your field because of social media. It is easier to be successful now than any time in history. We don't care what color you are, what, what color your hair is, what color your eyes are, whatever, you know, your, your gender, your, your, your sex, your, your, what your house looks like. You can make it. Every place is New York right now. If you could make it there, you could make it anywhere. New York is everywhere now. And to get in the top 5%, Earl Nightingale talks about, you know, uh, to be a top 5% author of all time, you have to sell 10,000 books. It's never been easier to write and make a book than it has been now. If you're a musician, you read the work, read the work of Derek Sivers, Okay. And read the work of Derek Sivers, S-I-V-E-R-S. Um, there's no easier time. There's no e Derek Sivers. Uh, it, 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 if you don't know him, know him by the end of the day, folks. And tell him I said hi. He, he, ha he actually listens to an online strength coach named uh, Dan John for his uh, physical education stuff. That's kind of cool, isn't it? That's brilliant. Um, if you're a musician, it's never been easier than now to become famous. There's this little Canadian boy, the Bieber boy, YouTube sensation. It, no matter what you do, it's easier now to be elite. There is, if, if you want to lose body fat, there's, there's never been more information better. I mean, there's a ton. Now, the upside now is that there's never been more. So your ability to discern is the key. So you got, even though it's easier to be successful now, but you have to discern better than any other time in history. I agree completely. I wrote a book about a year and a half ago, and it was amazing. And I started a podcast five years ago, and I don't know where I am on that pyramid, but the point is you don't know until you try. I think that's the Have you had more than seven podcasts? I have almost 600. So, so congratulations. You're in the top 5%. By the way, most podcasts fail after seven. Yeah, I, I heard that from Tim Ferriss when I first started. So I recorded six. Right oh, is that right? Bat. Yeah. So that was. Uh, oh, that is true then. Okay. I yeah. heard, I just heard, it. I didn't know it was an actual stat. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I haven't seen like, you know, facts, but Tim Ferriss is definitely, you know, someone who's very, very thorough. So yeah, I think that was the average back then. We're talking, you know, probably five and a half years ago now. But then he just revisited it, um, did another episode again, kind of retroactively looking back, and it was the same kind of same things, you know. And I tell people, people contact me wanting to, and I'm like, then just do it. You want to write a book, write a book. I, I agree with you 100%. There has never been a more liberating time. You don't have to beg a publisher. You don't have to try and get on a TV network. You just post your video, your recording, whatever it is, and, you know, if, if it's good, people will listen, and then people will talk about it. And if it's and not, even then if and if you're if you're off the rails, you're gonna have a whole 
bunch of people who are going to, you know, um, yesterday on my flight home from New York, I won't, um, the, the person sitting next to me in first class is an extremely famous actress. Extremely, like really, 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 really famous. And, you know, I would say I've probably taught hundreds of students who are more attractive than her in real life, except she's that person who lucked into this career. Okay. I mean, I'm not, and she's very pretty and she's wonderful and all those wonderful. She's great. There's nothing wrong with her. But having said that now uh, in 2022, as we, as we speak, you know, if you decide to do your own online Shakespeare productions, if, if you nail a certain correctly, I mean, you could be the next Patrick Stewart or, you know, or, or anybody from the, the Shakespearean, the Royal Shakespearean. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, such a great kind of topic to close with because we hear over and over again how toxic social media is. And I, I disagree. It, it's all about, you know, if you turn on Fox and CNN, you're going to get, you know, fire hose of shit coming at you. But if you choose, you know, insert whatever good <laughs> outlet would be, then you're going to get great information or you're going to get heartwarming stories. And it's the same with, with that. And it can be this online generation that we're in now can be completely toxic or it can be empowering. It's the decisions that you make of where you get your content from. Cahill Gibran had, he was a hundred years, he was a poet a hundred years ago. He actually talks about this kind of thing all the time. Um, but it's Gandhi said basically the same things about humanity. You know, so much of whether something is, is, is good or bad is, is you, you know, it, it's the you it's, it's, it's your filters. It's how you approach it, you know, and that's, you know, I always tell people, you know, I used to tell my students this, I go, was world war II good or bad? It was a moral theology class. And they would always, oh, you know, all these people die. No, okay, that's good. But my parents met at a USO dance. No World War II, no me. And somebody else is teaching this class, not nearly as well. That one. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, got to be very careful about what is good, what is bad. You know, it's the old we'll see story. The, you know, the farmer and the son story. Um, I'm not familiar with it. So I'd love oh, to hear okay. it. Well, a farmer has a son and, and a horse. And the horse dies and all the neighbors say, how bad? And the farmer says, we'll see. Uh, so all the neighbors get together, buy the farmer a new horse. And, the, and all, the, <clears throat> all the neighbors say, what a good thing. And the farmer says, we'll see. The next day, the son is trying to teach the horse, you know, break the horse. The horse throws the son off. The son breaks his leg. The farmer says, um, all the neighbors say, what a bad thing. The farmer says, we'll see. The next day, the army comes through town, drafts all the young boys except for the boy with the broken leg. They all go off to war. They all die. The neighbors come around and say, isn't it a good thing that your son broke his leg because he didn't die in the war? And the father looks up and says, we'll see. You know, someone did tell me that um, a few weeks ago. It's fine. I didn't recognize it by the name. But yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's what you make of so it. So is social media a good thing or a bad thing? We'll see. But in my case, it's been wonderful. I mean, I'm, I'm just this, you know, I'm just this guy who coached people and helped people. And because of Chris Sugar speaking high, 
because Charles Staley needed an extra speaker. One of my throwers said my name. Charles said, I never heard of him. I filled an hour. Chris Sugar then said on T Nation that I was, if I ever speak, go hear it. Um, a couple of weeks later, they lost a keynote at a, uh, at a conference down in LA. They saw that they invited me. I, so my first workshop in this field was 25 people. My second one was 600, you know, and all of a sudden, how did I become famous? Well, because <laughs> I showed up, I did what I do. And, and this marvelous thing called the internet, you know, I'm just a normal guy. There's thousands of Dan Johns, I'm sure of it, but I lucked out, you know, I was the person, you know, um, my sister-in-law became a Broadway star because when she auditioned, the, the big name said, that's what I'm thinking. And that's why she became a Broadway star sometimes. And social media allows you to have more of those opportunities. So yeah, good or bad, I don't know. Well, Dan, I just want to thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time. We've gone all over the place. We barely even touched on strength and conditioning, which is why I love these conversations. Well, let's talk again. We'll do that. And I thank you so much, okay? Okay.